the trade press plays an essential enforcement mechanism in a free market economy by providing the unflattering information about, uh, about uh, industry characters who violate norms. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. We're familiar with the concept of the watchdog journalist, the reporter ever vigilant against wrongdoing, especially by elected officials. The watchdog is adversarial, doggedly pursuing misconduct by those in power. But as Dr. Rob Wells, assistant professor at the University of Arkansas, explains, there's another type of journalist at publications, especially in the trade press. This journalist is the enforcer. Their relationship with those in power is more nuanced. The publications these journalists work at rely almost exclusively on a niche audience of readers, such as bankers, for survival, and they exclusively cover topics of interest to that audience. But in the process, those readers often become information sources and sometimes even become the subjects of investigative journalism. This is a tough spot to be in, but it's central to the work of the enforcer because it gives them unique insight into important topics. And at times, such as when reporters at one such trade publication uncovered a scandal that embroiled five U.S. senators in controversy in the 1980s, this journalism can be crucial to the healthy functioning of a democracy. For this reason, Rob Wells says we should pay more attention to the trade press. And he does so through the case of the Keating Five scandal, this landmark episode in the 1980s savings and loan crisis. It's the topic of his recent book, The Enforcers, how little-known trade reporters exposed the Keating Five and advanced business journalism. And it's a story that he's going to share with us today. All right, Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. All right, well, thank you very much, Ken, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in, in talking about your book, I think one of the most important topics to sort of get out in the open beforehand to help orient us all to the topic is the trade press. So why don't you start by sort of orienting us to, to how journalism factors into that space? Sure. So the trade press really started in, uh, you know, about the 1830s, 1840s with the rise of industrial America as we had specialized industries there is a big need for information, for continuing education, for you know knowledge about supplies and best practices, and so you had uh, railroad journals emerge in this period, and then you know chemical journals and drug journals, and these um, can be either beholden to the industry or they can be you know separate independent ent entities. Um, good example of contemporary trade press would be like the American Banker you know, uh -huh. uh, covering uh, the banking industry as an independent uh, journalistic enterprise. So the trade press has evolved in tandem with, uh, with the economy and it's become very, very big, very powerful and an important part of, uh, of the business journalism universe. And no academics are looking at it. Nobody's like really kind of looking at what is happening 
in the trade press. And this is what my book uh, brings to uh, the table, I really think, for the first time in a detailed way. Why is it that it's so understudied, right? Is it just not sexy enough to to get the attention of researchers? (laughs) It is not sexy enough. That is exactly right. Uh, (laughs) The business journalism, I don't know if what newsroom you're in, but, you know, the business desk, in my experience, is always back in the corner, right? It was always kind of like off to the side. And, and it had uh, low status. It was regarded as a, a beat that really required a lot of technical expertise. It never got on the front page that much. And so business journalism has been a backwater for many years. And that's sort of the narrative I'm kind of fighting about and, and discussing. It, it may have been a backwater then, but it's just so essential for our economic well-being right now. I mean, it is really these business stories go to the heart of our current election, <laughs> you know, sure. talk about taxes, you know, these, these are big business stories. And so um, the trade press as has always been considered sort of kind of a stepchild of, in, of conventional journalism, because there is this kind of hazy idea of whether or not these are journals that are published by, you know, by industries themselves, or are they too close to the industry they're covering? Are they going to really provide hard-hitting objective news? And I'm finding a slice of this industry does some really great independent investigative reporting, which nobody really had been talking about until this point. Well, and so your book centers on one specific case um, that sort of illustrates the the value that that type of journalism can have. And so why don't you sort of ease us into the story that you tell in this book? What was it that happened at the core of your book? Right. So the, the core is this whole uh, episode in the 1980s called the Keating Five Scandal. And it looks kind of quaint uh, compared to today's political <laughs> scandals, but it was a very big deal at the time. And uh, basically, Charles Keating was a very powerful conservative uh, developer, a major funder for the Reagan and George H.W. Bush campaigns, um, uh, a big cons- a religious conservative activist who was in a, on a major anti-pornography uh, campaign. And he owned a small savings and loan um, out in California called Lincoln Savings and Loan. And he bought it at a time when Reagan deregulated the banking industry. And the purpose was to use this federally chartered entity as a way to finance some of his very ambitious uh, home building projects in the Southwest and in Phoenix. He was a, a big time home developer. What he ended up doing was getting involved with some highly speculative and aggressive finance. He was bankrolled by Michael Milken uh, of the junk bond uh, king, you know, the 80s. Mm-hmm. And the uh, bank became highly leveraged and unstable, and regulators wanted to shut it down because it was taking on too much risk on the, uh, as a, as a taxpayer-insured entity. So there was a regulatory fight. And he ended up getting five U.S. senators to intervene on his behalf in this regulatory fight. And they all got money from him, uh, John McCain and uh, Donald Regal, um, Dennis DeConcini, Alan Cranston, and John Glenn, the former astronaut. Right. The, these all, all these guys <laughs> sat down with the regulators and said, hey, you know, Keating's uh, he's, he's a constituent in our districts because he had nationwide, you know, uh, 
operations and, you know, back off on him. He's just trying to do the right thing. So it was a political money scandal that had not been seen in, in Washington at that time, you know, to have five sitting senators come in and, 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 you know, try to run interference for you in a regulatory matter. It became, uh, uh, one of the you know, main symbols of the savings and loan crisis, which was uh, one of the worst bank um, uh, you know, disasters to happen uh, since the Great Depression at that time. And uh, Keating became the symbol on television and newspaper coverage of, uh, of corruption in the banking industry and political corruption. So how did uh, how did this story eventually wind up being discovered? How does the trade press sort of enter into this space and, and publicize what happened here? And, and so this goes back to the earlier narrative about business being a backwater. Nobody was really paying attention to the SNL industry in mainstream media. Uh, main, you know, reporters were kind of coming through and uh, cycling through this story. But at the major uh, publications, they weren't really paying close attention to what Keating was doing in, in this space, but the trade press was, and the publication that I focused on was called National Thrift News, and you can't buy National Thrift News on the newsstand. It's a specialized publication, and it's just for mortgage executives, right? It's not a general circulation publication, but they do real journalism, and they're they're really you know very aggressive about covering. Their industry, and as I got in to see their their coverage, I was surprised at how much they would write very critically about the people who were their main advertisers and readers. And the advertisers and readers later told me that you know, yeah, we didn't like getting beat up in the paper, but it was very valuable intelligence for us to see what was happening uh, throughout the industry. The National Thrift News got wind of what was going on with the Keating Five case. And they did some remarkable investigative reporting. They got a transcript of the meeting with the five senators and the regulators. They got a frigging transcript. <laughs> and uh, apparently one of the regulators, you know, was not trusting anybody in the meeting. And so he might have worn a wire. And that's where the transcript came from. But anyway, they got this transcript. That wasn't good enough. So he called everybody on the transcript and got it nailed down. So they got everything on this leaked document nailed down, broke the story. And for the next two and a half years, <laughs> the mainstream media ignores it. Huh. They ignore this incredible story back in September of, uh, of 1987, allowing you know, this bank to continue to get even more leveraged and even more risky. And, uh, and then it ends up with a multi-billion dollar failure and uh, a price tag that the, um, that the, American public had to pick up. So the basic story was the small trade paper in doing, you know, business journalism in a, in a corner of the financial markets breaks a big story. I know that the reporters were reading this paper, you know, uh -huh. and they freaking ignored it. So why, what, what is it about these topics that, that, you know, get, ignored or overlooked by, you know, you, you note in your book that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal in particular dropped the ball on this. Why? What? How did they miss such a, a high-profile incident like this? Part of it is you just didn't have consistent reporting. Um, you didn't have consistent staffing on, uh, on this beat. 
and reporters wanted to move up to something more prestigious like foreign affairs or or you know, national politics. So you didn't have the intellectual uh, you know, history and the foundation that, that the trade press did. They, they were staying, staying with the characters and they knew the, the trajectory of, of these stories. So you had a lot of turnover on the big papers. It was a complex story to, to convey on, on some level, and you needed to have some amount of expertise to understand the, um, the nuance in the regulatory filings when they were filing assistant to cease order. Well, they really meant they were going to shut you down. So you had to know, you know something about what was going on with the regulatory system. And there is also, I believe, you know, institutional arrogance. And it's something that I saw working at the Wall Street Journal and at, and at AP. You know, uh, we if we don't break it, then it doesn't happen. <laughs> huh. And and I think that was was definitely some some uh, of the factor that that, that uh, led to this problem. And now a quick word about another podcast you may be interested in. Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each interview on this podcast begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life, YouTube celebrities, historians, to my next-door neighbor. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery, fueled by an unrelenting need to know more. We look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Stay up to date on the latest Armchair Historians news at armchairhistorians.com, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What's your favorite history? And so do those do the big papers eventually pick up the story and run with it or yeah. or does it stay low key? They they eventually pick it up when Lincoln Savings fails and Keating files for bankruptcy in April 1989. And then it becomes like wow, this is a very large failure of a savings loan. What happened? Who is this guy? And they go back and rediscover the 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 Keating 5 story that the National Thrift News had published in September 1987. And the story comes out about, you know, these five senators. And by the fall of 1989, there are major congressional hearings. Uh, some call them the Watergate hearings of the savings and loan crisis. But <laughs> they were, you know, they were like six weeks of hearings where, you know, senators, top regulators, all of this, you know, were brought to the to the forefront by uh, former Congressman Henry Gonzalez of Texas. And this led to the, um, the resignation of the, the chief savings and loan regulator and some, uh, and some legislation and some very embarrassing uh, moments for prominent politicians like John McCain. And McCain, as you know, he was one of these guys running interference for Keating, who was from Phoenix. So it was a kind of a constituent, but I, I think McCain kind of comes out a little better than most in this because he apologized and he ended up sponsoring campaign finance legislation after this. Interesting. So 
you, you note, uh, you actually already noted, but I, I want to come back to it, a little bit about this conflict of interest that trade publications like uh, uh, National Thrift News have. What is it about, like, where is that conflict of interest? Is, it, is, is that unique to the trade press? Is it something to do with that positioning of, of these publications? So it's not unique with the trade press, but it's very, very, you know, bold and present and and sort of in your face. They're, the National Thrift News, for example, their main source of, of revenue would be the advertisements and subscriptions of people who are in that industry. So it's a very narrow base of uh of, of revenue. They're not getting a diversified revenue stream like a, a mainstream newspaper would get from the auto industry or, you know, net, you know, or, uh, um, you know, the movies or what have you. And so when you are writing something critical about them, about your particular industry, there could be, you know, potential for an advertiser boycott or what have you that could, you know, really hurt your, potential, um, you know, income and, and, and the sustainability of the, of the newspaper. So what I found in this case was there, there were a couple advertising boycotts of the uh, National Thrift News, but they didn't last long. And the reason was because they were providing such an essential service. And this is why I call the book The Enforcers, because I'm arguing the trade press plays an essential enforcement mechanism in a free market economy by providing the unflattering information about uh, about uh, industry characters who violate norms, who violate the standard ethical behavior. And so trade publications like the National Thrift News are enforcers of sort of a corporate morality is what I'm arguing. Well, and, and if I understood your book right, uh, Ownership of the of the publication is really important to fulfilling this role, right? Um, you, you make some really big conclusions about the different types of, of uh, you know uh, ownership that a publication might have and the impact that that has on the type of reporting that they can produce. Can you say a little bit about that in this case? Yeah. So the National Thrift News was unusual. That it, it was it was a completely independent uh, publication from uh, from the industry. It was run. It was partly owned by a journalist, and his name was Stan Strachan who had worked at the American Banker and came up through New York newspapers in the 50s and 60s. And just a, a wonderful old school reporter who had a very strong sense of uh, journalistic values. And he was recruited by a couple outside investors and given, you know, pretty much a editorial autonomy to, to build this up. So having a journalist as part owner of a uh, news organization in this case, was really important. When it came, you know, the savings and loan industry was experiencing a lot of financial problems in the, uh, and just a disaster, really, in that, in that period. And he was able to fight back, you know, attempts to cut the budget by some of the investors by saying, you know, there's no way we can sacrifice quality journalism with these budget cuts. If you do this, I'm going to walk and the whole place is going to come down. So we had a, at the table on a, you know, doing budget decisions, uh, you know, a part owner, a journalist defending, you know, quality uh, reporting. And this allowed, this ownership structure allowed independent and investigative journalism to flourish 
when you look through the history of commercialism in, in journalism, there's, uh, you know, a significant problem with uh, shareholder owned entities having pressure to meet uh, um, quarterly earnings. I think McClatchy is, is a, a really prime example of that. Gannett is another one Sure. where the, um, the pressure for, for, for quarterly earnings growth is, you know, is in conflict with, uh, long-term investments in, 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 in broader newsrooms. Well, one, one of the, the topics that your book brings up that I, I think we would be crazy to, to ignore here deals with sort of that, the, the, not just ownership, but also just the, the sort of bravery of, of reporters in this case in standing up to pressure from Keating and others, because uh, something you talk about in the book is Keating using some tactics, much like some some uh, uh, characters that we may be a little bit more familiar with uh, in, in our contemporary society, um, namely Donald Trump, right? So can you speak a, li- a little bit to how Keating dealt with reporters, dealt with journalists, and sometimes tried to pressure them to avoid bad publicity and why that may not have come into play in this particular case? Yeah, so I, I I argue that the National Thrift News was an incredibly brave outfit by um, standing up and reporting aggressively on Keating, because at the time he was suing a, uh, a number of uh, publications in uh, and journalists in in Arizona and elsewhere. Um, he had um, he had eighty two law firms on retainer. <laughs> wow. That came out in the congressional uh, hearings. He had spent $50 million. He had enormous financial resources. And he was known for, um, for filing libel suits that may not be successful, but they were, uh, they were a way of, of really challenging you know, uh, any aggressive reporting about just its developments. There was a libel suit filed over some dispute involving water at a, uh, an Arizona subdivision. And the National Thrift News didn't even have a lawyer on staff. It was a very small uh, enterprise. And they went ahead and filed this, uh, this story at a time where, where Keating had, had brought a very large libel suit against a freelance writer uh, who was looking at uh, some of these similar issues. So um, what I found is you know, some really strong parallels between Keating and Donald Trump in that uh, Trump was using the same sort of tactics to push back against critical reporting of his Atlantic City casinos and other uh, narratives, you know, challenging whether or not he, in fact, is a billionaire. You know, this sure. was a long-running uh, libel case, which he lost. And, uh, and Trump was, you know, very uh, blunt about the whole thing. Well, I, 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 taught, I showed him a lesson, you know, they're going to think twice before coming after me next time. And... They do. Libel suits are an ex, an existential threat to journalists. They are uh, something that could potentially, you know, put a um, a, a major financial burden on a on a, uh, a news organization. So it is a very very serious thing within the culture of journalism to deal with a libel case, and it's a it's a classic way of a strong economic actor. Uh, trying to uh, brush back and, and potentially censor the news. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think the, the, the clearest message that I got from reading your book was that, that we need to take business journalism and the trade press more seriously. Can you 
neatly summarize sort of your your main argument for that. It's come out in what you've said already, but I, I, I think it would benefit us all to get a crystal clear picture of why it is that the trade press needs more serious attention by historians and why it should maybe play a larger role in American journalism more broadly. Yeah. So the at this point in our society, a lot of us are on our own to make really critical decisions about healthcare, about investments, about our own financial lives. We are in this uh, neoliberal environment where we're kind of on our own. And we will look, we need to have quality, dependable, and accurate uh, reporting about the institutions where we might be trusting our life savings. This is the role that the trade press can play. This is why we need to support, you know, very strong investigative journalism, business journalism, to uh, bring to the forefront, you know, these these potential problems in uh, in corporate America, and the corporations benefit from this. They get to see, you know, uh, large organizations may not know what's going on in a corner of their universe, and. Uh, they can step up and 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 police their actors and 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 take uh, take action. So I, I just think that uh, going forward, that business journalism is really essential for for protecting society uh, at a time when we um, have to make so many decisions on our own about our uh, financial livelihoods. Absolutely. Okay. Well, one last question for you. This is a question we ask all of our guests, and that is. In, in your own mind, why does journalism history matter? Well, journalism history matters in, in many ways, but, but I, I would say we need to really understand, in order to understand the complex environment that we're in with, with the media, looking back to the origins of uh, the Industrial uh, Revolution and, and the press the conflicts in in the commercial, um, uh, you know, revenue model that was taking place back at that time, really kind of inform some of the problems we have today with with social media platforms and and advertising, uh, you know, conflicts and so forth. I I just find that journalism history is a, a critical lens for us to make sense of our, our current media environment. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today, Rob. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate it very much. That's all the time we have for today. Again, the book is The Enforcers, How Little-Known Trade Reporters Exposed the Keating Five and Advanced Business Journalism. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. That's all one word. Until next time, I'm your host, Ken Ward, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow, Good night and good luck. <laughs>